All right, welcome. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and I'd like to welcome all of you who are here today. We're going to be talking about disability advocacy, and I'd like to introduce Valerie Powers-Smith. She's an attorney who has been very involved in advocating for parents and patients who have special needs and who also can need to get an understanding of how they can um, benefit from advocating for themselves and understanding their rights and legal system. Valerie, would you introduce yourself a little further? Uh, sure. Um, I have been practicing for over 11 years. Uh, my entire practice has been concentrated in the area of disability law. So while I have no personal reason, um, I find I'm very passionate about the area and I've dedicated my entire career um, to that. I appreciate Christy's um, earlier introductions and description of me being passionate about that. It's nice that that comes over um, during my discussions. Uh, as I said earlier, I do practice both in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, uh, and basically work from what I sort of say, you know, from birth to the end of life in terms of all issues that are associated. So Christy has asked me to do sort of an overview of the important issues that one needs to be aware of in advocating for an individual they are caring for with a disability, whether it's a child or it may be an adult sibling of yours um, or some other relationship that you are a caregiver. So it's a lot to cover in a short period of time. So I'll try to do an overview, and then depending on questions, we can get into more detail as um, time allows. One of the areas that I spend the most of my time in and I'm most passionate about is in the area of healthcare. Uh, Valerie, I'm going to inter interrupt you one second just to clarify about questions. So my suggestion is that if you have a question that's very relevant to the topic that Valerie is speaking about, feel free to interrupt and ask your question because that may help clarify the point or enhance the discussion. If you have a question that you feel is more specific about your situation or is more general about a topic that she hasn't discussed, you will have a chance um, after she's done her general overview to ask that question. Can I, I also want to refer everybody to the website one more time, which is www.hinkle.com, where Valerie will be referring to some of the articles that she's written that uh, elaborate on these topics today, too. Chris, that link is up on Hideaway Action right now. Can I just ask a quick question? Sure. Is, is the focus at all going to be on the patients themselves and adults that are employed? Meaning? I mean, you talked about the caregiver and children and people that are helping the disabled. What about the people that are the patients themselves? Yeah, the comments that I'm going to make are, go across all lines. Okay. So if, it, if there is an individual on the line with the disability, it applies to you as well. Well, I don't know what the membership is, if it's individuals with a disability or individuals for care. So, uh, okay. I think we have um, lots of people who are adults advocating for themselves, and then a fair number of people who are either parents or spouses or in a caregiver position advocating for another person as well. So I comment to the university applies. Yeah, and if you feel like there's a situation that applies to um, a person over 18 versus a person under 18, if you would clarify that during the discussion as well, that would be really useful. Well done. Um, all right, before I get into the discussion, just um, with reference to the link to the website, if you go on there, I, I'm not 
can't believe I'm telling people to do this because I don't really like my picture on the website, but if people like that, <laughs> have a picture of who's actually talking, I am on the website, and it's pretty easy to navigate. There are sections that say uh, newsletter, in print, all those materials that I've written or anyone else in the firm has written um, in a periodic fashion will be posted onto the website. So there's a lot of materials on there that one can find and download, and if that seems cumbersome, you can always send an email as well to request something and hard copy be sent out. So that being said, let me get into the overall topic. I, I'm going to go over the full lifespan, not knowing whether some people may be minors or 18 and older. So um, when we're talking about accessing services, I look at a simultaneous approach in terms of what services, based on one's disability, should you be accessing either as an individual or as one caring for an individual with a disability. Now, I'm going to use some terminology that may be called slightly something different in the state that you may be in. For example, Medicaid is a very important federal program that works with federal and state matches. In the state of New Jersey, it is called Medicaid. Federally, it is called Medicaid. But, for example, in Pennsylvania, they call it medical assistance. So I'm going to use the term Medicaid. Bear in mind that your state may call it something along the lines of how Pennsylvania has changed it to medical assistance. If anybody's not clear, we can try to probe into that to make sure that you understand how it applies to your state. Um, but otherwise, Social Security is federal. Medicare is federal. So speaking of early services, all of you should be aware that there are going to be circumstance, circumstances depending on how the mitochondrial disease affects you and or the individual you're caring for that may lead to issues within early intervention systems or in the special education system. Now, again, generally, states may call these different processes something slightly different, but I'm going to just generally, in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania, zero to three, they refer to services such as early services as early intervention. They may be derived from different departments within the respective state governments, but early intervention services are, are what they're referencing. One must show developmental delays in certain areas in order to receive these services. Now, one may say, why am I talking about this? My focus in advocating is not only for you to know your rights, but also to open your eyes to different sources of services based on disability that one has available to them so that you're not having to dig into your own pocket to pay for services for yourself or for your children. Uh, an area that early intervention services could fill in are therapy services, nursing services. Now, again, there may be nuances depending on what your state is, but in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, that's largely what type of services come under early intervention. The goal in providing these services is to give an individual who's exhibiting developmental delays, extra assistance so as to prepare them for not only developmental milestones, but also going into the educational setting. In both Pennsylvania and New Jersey, they have been very focused in doing this in the most natural setting, which they've flip-flopped back and forth, but it is now most times put in the household, unless that's not uh, a possibility. And so those services can be provided. If you're also trying to what I call front-load services to try to 
make the most gains early on in one's life, depending on how their disability is impacting them. You also would want to complement those services if you're getting through early intervention from the ages of zero to three by trying to access Medicaid eligibility and trying to also access private insurance coverage. Now, private insurance is always going to pay first before Medicaid or whatever your state is calling it. The reason why I raise Medicaid is not only um, for these complementary services during zero to three, but it's very important to try to get eligibility as soon as possible, whether or not you access it in the present time for long-term care services. Now, Medicaid federally hooks into, in some states, Eligibility through the Social Security Administration for SSI payments. Now, in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania, I can't accept for other states, once someone gets eligibility for SSI payments through the Social Security Administration, they will get automatic Medicaid coverage, which is a form of health insurance, but is also uh, primary funding in many states for residential services, day program services, and long-term care type of services. Valerie, is that the same whether you are an adult or you are looking for services for a child? For the mode of coverage? Right, for the Medicaid. Yes, yes. I'm going to go into it right now into the different age eligibility. Okay. So for most individuals who have significant disabilities, they're not going to qualify for SSI through Social Security Administration and as a result are not going to gain Medicaid coverage during their age of, ages of minority because the eligibility requirements are means tested. They look at both income and resources in addition to disability of the parents. So when someone is a minor, parental income and resources are deemed to them, which means they're counted as if they were that minor individual. So most people are going to be higher than what the federal government requires. Presently, one may not have more than $2,000 in resources in their name. So most parents in that area alone are going to blow their kids out of the water in terms of being able to get any SSI eligibility while they're under the age of 18. Similarly, the income threshold is approximately $800 a month right now. So it's resources at any time. Income is per month received. So most parents are earning more than 800. Most parents have more than $2,000 in their name. And so most minor children will not be able to gain Medicaid nor SSI eligibility until they're 18. What that means is that parents or caregivers have to do the appropriate planning in terms of the child's resources to make sure that when they're approaching their teenage years that they do not have more than $2,000 in their name. Now, most times... This is difficult because maybe a diagnosis wasn't known until a certain time in life. And so custodial accounts or educational type of funds have been started. Um, people may have bought stocks or this and that in the child's name. Grandmoms buying bonds every birthday or christenings, you know, things of that nature. And so what you need to do at whatever age your child is that you find this out you need to scour their assets to see what's going on there to see what you need to take care of. Now, we generally advise it is not a good idea to have money in a child's name if they have significant disabilities because of the importance of qualifying for Medicaid and holding on to it for the lifetime of the child. 
Now, Medicaid has what we call a five-year look-back period. And so if your child has assets in his or her name, you just want to take care of moving them out of their name before they turn 13 because they're eligible at 18, so Medicaid's going to look back minus five, so that's age 13. Um, some people may be thinking, well, great, what do I do now if my child's already beyond that and I'm within a look-back period and I didn't know that I should be doing this whole Medicaid SSI application? Um, you know, it, it takes an evaluation of what, what the situation is to figure out how you take care of if the assets are greater than 2000 Most parents will have expended greater than what the child has in his or her name during the lifetime because of the disability. Now, what I mean by that is, Parents are going to spend money for their children. How do you quantify what you spent and what you could legitimately reimburse yourself for? Or if there are out-of-pocket costs that, but for the child's disability, you would not normally incur in your capacity as their parent. Extra premiums you may cover, um, uncovered medical expenses, which I appreciate, are probably a large issue for, for the individuals who are on this call. Um, you know, adaptive equipment, things for schools that the school didn't cover through the special education system, recreational type of activities and the like. If the individual is of age and has been living at home with mom and dad, then room and board times however many years um, you've not been charging is something that you can also use to justify movement of money out of that individual's name and into, you know, put it into mom or dad's name into another account. Not with their name, not with their social security number, but you just know that your savings account that ends with O2, for example, is Johnny's money. Um, and I'll say, I use Johnny for all my examples. So. <laughs> um, so that way you can then justify the movement and make explication in if SSI, I mean, excuse me, if Social Security Administration or Medicaid doesn't look back, you'll be able to explain why the money is no longer there and it was, you know, a year or so or any other time during the five-year look back. And so whatever stage you're at, you want to try to access Medicaid as soon as possible. Now, in some states, uh, I could say I know in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, there are different avenues than that one that I just described for minors and or for those who are of age to access Medicaid coverage with different eligibility requirements. I obviously cannot um, attest to what any other state has other than to say that most states, I don't know if every single one, but most states have at least one what they call home and community-based waiver programs. And what that means is the state, individual state, makes application to the federal government to say we want to change some of the federal requirements for Medicaid eligibility in order to serve a specific population or uh, a a certain area that we think has been um, detected as an unmet needed area. Um, and so what they do, in the example um, of New Jersey, there is a division called the Division of Developmental Disabilities. And any client who has a developmental disability and meets the statutory eligibility process becomes a client and can receive services from the state. They apply to the federal government to allow them to provide a broader range of Medicaid eligibility to clients who would otherwise not be eligible. So in the example that I gave earlier, minor child often is not going to get Medicaid eligibility because they can't get it through the SSI route because of parental income and resources. In this circumstance of this particular waiver, the federal government allowed the state to waive the parental deeming 
requirement of income and resources, which means they don't get that applied to them, so they don't get disqualified, and a child who would normally not get Medicaid via the SSI route can now gain early Medicaid coverage through this waiver. Similarly, for adults who are under this waiver, they get a higher income threshold. So a lot of times, if you get the resource piece together, an individual may have to grapple as to, do I work in a position that I may have a lot of benefits from doing so and get more money, or do I balance and, you know, figure I can't make more than 800 or I'm going to lose my SSI, which means I'm going to lose my Medicaid, which I can't afford to do. So a lot of people have to sort of balance how they work with the employment situation along with making sure that they maintain their Medicaid if it's connected to the SSI guidelines. In this circumstance under the waiver, the state allows a higher threshold so one can work and keep it under, instead of the 800 example I gave you earlier, this waiver allows someone to make up to 1800 So you can see one could work because you get a $1,000 buffer there and still maintain their Medicaid. Now, you lose your SSI payment, but so what? You're, you're making more money because you're working and you have, you're able to bring in more income, and the Medicaid is the, court, the piece that's most important. So that's an example of a waiver. Um, you know, there are other waivers, you know, about 20 waivers between Pennsylvania and New Jersey that I'm aware of. I'm not going to go through each one, but I know states have them. I just can't describe your individual state's waiver. Um, a good resource to check into that if you're not aware, um, CMS, so that's Cat Mary Sugar, is the federal agency that oversees Medicaid, and they've got a pretty good website if you just put in cms.gov, GOV. Uh, they have individual state plans, and they also have information about what states have what waivers. Um, so that may be a good starting point for anyone who's uh, interested in that type of information. Um, so going back from the early intervention, which I started with, after one gets out of the early intervention system, depending on what your state calls it, the next bracket is either 3 to 5 and then 5 to 21. Um, or 3 to 21. Typically, 3 to 5 age is either early intervention preschool or preschool disabled. Generally, those type of terminologies is one age is out of the early intervention system, and they're between the special education system and that early intervention system into what is called a preschool. Um, and so other individuals who don't have children with disabilities, they're just doing daycare or their own preschool, this is a system that's federally funded and, and required to go through evaluations, develop an IEP, which outlines the child's disability, how it impacts them educationally, talks about what supports and services he or she will need in order to make meaningful educational progress, and what type of placements, where will the child receive his or her education, either in district um, or out of district, um, and all of the particulars in terms of what their goals and objectives will be in each subject area. This is sort of the precursor to their educational career um, from kindergarten until they graduate. Federally, one is entitled to receive education through the age of 21 unless it is agreed between the parents and the school district that one be graduated sooner. Certainly an option. Um, most often something that people are forced to go through and you have to fight not being graduated. Um, but there, it is a federal educational entitlement to the age of 21. Um, 
is there much interest in me talking about special education particulars on this call? It's really up to you guys. Um, I know that we have a larger group of adults on the call. Okay. I'm fine not talking about it. I just don't want broader disability issues. And and I think that, um, and you guys help me out, but this is the impression that I get also that insurance is a tough one. Um, Maybe talking about medical necessity would be helpful because often with mitochondrial disease, because it's not a standard diagnosis with insurance companies, things are automatically denied and then there's a battle that has to be fought for whether it be equipment or services or coverage or even basic diagnostic process things. Okay. Well, let me just go, let me go on then. We've talked about early intervention. We've talked about the early services and the age brackets um, and the Medicaid and SSI. I just want to touch on two other points before I go into the healthcare piece in terms of the lifespan issues that one needs to be concerned about. I don't know how frequent guardianship issues may um, apply to individuals who are on this call, but I will just throw it out there to say that despite one's um, disability and how it may impair their ability to manage themselves and their own affairs, upon reaching the age of 18, that individual is able to make decisions um, for his, his or herself and a parent does not continue just because I've always made the decision um, for them. And so there is a legal procedure that one must go through in order to continue to be the legal decision maker post the child receiving, uh, obtaining rather, the age of 18. Uh, you know, I know that there are some circumstances where there may be neurological conditions, where there may be mental retardation um, or developmental disabilities. So I just throw that out there to say that while it may not pertain to anyone on the call, I do appreciate that mitochondrial disease can have that manifestation, and so it is something to to bear in mind. That is critically important, particularly if the individual is not able to manage care, and health care is a major concern because if physicians or providers or healthcare insurance companies do not want to deal with you because you do not have legal authority, that's a federal right that they have under the HIPAA laws. And so if that's going to be a problem, you have to consider making sure that you obtain that uh, power. There are other ways if the person just doesn't want to handle the situation and has someone handle it, but they're not necessarily incapacitated and not necessarily would rise to the standard of uh, a guardianship action. One, if they are able to understand and comprehend what they are granting, they could grant someone a power of attorney or they could appoint someone a representative. So those are other alternatives. It doesn't have to be um, as serious as a guardianship action, but those are things that would be important to make sure that that's not one, you know, other thing that's being thrown out there as an obstacle for you accessing the appropriate care that you need for whoever it is that you're caring for. Uh, the last issue before going into the healthcare uh, pieces is, along with me talking earlier about doing the appropriate pre-planning in order to access Medicaid eligibility, which I'm emphasizing because it can be, in some circumstances, um, a great fill-in as a secondary coverage source after the private insurance has been exhausted or in the circumstances where the private insurance doesn't cover it at all. And the standards in terms of the arguments that I will raise about um, how, get, how you get things covered is going to apply both to private insurance and Medicaid. 
The last piece in terms of the planning so that you're being able to obtain the resources of Medicaid and maintain them for this person's lifetime is to make sure that if an individual is a beneficiary um, of anyone's policy, such as a life insurance policy, an investment, retirement account, or anyone's estate, or parents, you know, it's not just parents, it's grandparents, family members, friends, you have to make sure that no share goes directly to that individual, but rather to a specially crafted special needs trust so that that money can go into the trust for the benefit of their lifetime and meet any unmet needs, such as care that's needed that can't get covered under any insurance or Medicaid, and not to them directly. If money goes to an individual directly, who is on Medicaid, that entire sum will be subject to recruitment by the state up to the full amount of services that they have provided that individual prior to them coming into money. Similarly, if someone is not yet eligible, they will have to spend down those monies before they are able to get eligible, depending on the amount of money that they get. Spending down money below $2,000 may be a significant task. And in any case, whether it's making someone ineligible and having the state gobble it up or having to spend down um, in, a, in a quicker fashion than perhaps one would intend, most often are not capturing the full intent of the individual who left that money to the individual. So those are important considerations to make sure that you maintain coverage and can maximize what you're getting paid for and minimize what's coming out of your pocket. I, I, I do have a pertinent question. May I ask one? Yes. Yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself and then ask the question. Uh, my name is Wendy Helmka, um, and I'm a patient with mitochondrial disease and mm -hmm. also an adult advocacy co-chair. My direct question regarding this is, as an adult patient with um, Social Security and, and other benefits, if I were to receive benefits from an estate or a life insurance policy from my parents who had died, would I also be subject to those legal things if they didn't make a special needs trust in that in that beneficiary? Yes. If, if, I can't tell by your if if it's too late or if it's already happened. No, my parents have not died yet, but if okay. they already have a will and a state plan. Yeah, what they need to do is if... You know, you're a beneficiary into their estate. They need to make sure that instead of giving it directly to you, if you need to make sure your resources don't go above 2000 they need to be instead, wherever your name is, accepting that I don't give anything directly to my daughter, whatever your name. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't catch the full name. And instead, giving it to the family trust agreement for your sole benefit. So you still get the same benefit of having the assets available, but they're not considered to be an available resource to you because there's a trustee appointed that manages the money, disperses the money as necessary to meet your needs. But with it not being in your name, not going to you directly, and instead going to a trust and someone else managing it, for Social Security purposes and Medicaid purposes, it's not considered to be a countable resource. And so if it's not done that way, it is going to cause problems for you. Excuse me. I'm Mary Ann. I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm a mother. Are you still there? Yes. Yes, we are. I'm sorry. I thought I lost you again. Um, I'm a mother of a 33-year-old, Heather, who has mitochondrial. And you hit on two points. One is we have a local community slash uh, being guided by a church who would like to uh, have fundraising for my daughters, poor oh boy. 
And um, I have said to them, I don't know if I can humbly but gratefully say yes because of the SSI they received and the SSA and the medical assistance because I know they would be in some way um, losing many of their benefits, which we have over the last 12 years uh, applied for and, and had to really work hard to get. Well, Pennsylvania is extremely arduous process, so I would I would <laughs> would not advocate having to get them back once once you've obtained them. So the church called again while I was out, and and they're wondering whether we're going to say yay or nay. And I was delighted to hear that you were speaking today. What do we say? How do we do? Do we refuse this? Well, I mean, in those circumstances, they're very. I mean, they're very case specific. Okay. In terms of what's going on, so I can't give you. Say yes or no. Um, all I can say is you have to proceed with extreme caution with those type of arrangements because most often um, there's so many factors in terms of how it's advertised, um, what people think that they're giving. Do they think that they're giving for a charitable purpose? Do they think that they're giving money to a family, i.e., your family? Um, and so while it's a fundraiser, it's not a charitable in terms of mitochondrial disease foundation, for example. Um, so it's hard for me to say because I don't know all the particulars of how they've advertised it, who it's going to, how the money's going to be structured, are they just going to be giving you a check. It's that latter, that's a problem. Um, you know, and I don't know how much the church uh, wants to organize or has the capacity to organize having money going into a trust for someone's benefit versus doing fundraisers and giving money outright. They may be just interested in doing that. They may just want to be giving money directly. But if it's the case they're fundraising, they're giving money directly to you, you know, and it's not something that we, we are out $100,000 because of X medical circumstances that occurred and it's going to be reimbursed to you as an out-of-pocket that you could justify, as I was discussing earlier. It's really a, not a good idea generally um, unless you're structuring it and going into a trust. Because, for example, um, some individuals may not in this circumstance, but a lot of uh, my clients, they do a, a tremendous amount of trust work for clients who have had medical malpractice suits. And we don't handle medical malpractice, but a lot of the attorneys enlist our services when they're about to settle the matters for us to draft language for the court and write a brief and a trust document to explain the importance of that person's share going into a trust instead of it going directly to them. Now, in that circumstance, the money is considered to be the person with a disability, but the arguments of public policy outweighing someone getting money directly, but instead being able to have it to go into a trust so they can preserve their social security benefits if they're SSI and their Medicaid are far outweighed. And so the direction of the court is to redirect that person's award into the trust for the benefit of their lifetime. The contingency is that Medicaid and Social Security get noticed mm -hmm. on the action. They have to agree to it, obviously. Um, the other contingency is Medicaid getting in line first to get paid back when that person passes away if there's anything left in their trust. I mean, that's fair enough. Some people may think, oh, that's not right. Well, the money's theirs. The only way that that person is being able to obtain their SSI and Medicaid is because of Medicaid and Social Security allowing that money to go into their trust. So it's sort of the best of both worlds. You get the SSI and Medicaid maintenance, and you get 
a trust for the benefit, you know, for your entire life to meet any unmet needs to enhance the quality of that individual's life. And then if there's anything left that you haven't used up, well, fair enough. Medicaid gets paid up to 100%, and then that person's respective estate gets whatever is left if there's anything left. Clearly, the aim during the lifetime is to spend the money, you know, so there's nothing left. But, you know, Medicaid's taking the roll of the dice. They often get nothing. I've got many circumstances where, unfortunately, the individuals do not live the full lifetime, and there's a tremendous amount of money, and Medicaid gets the money back. So it all sort of evens out. Um, but that circumstance would be something along the lines of what I'd be um, talking about with the charity um, fundraising thing. That money would be considered the person. So it's a lot more complicated than them just saying, oh, okay, we'll put it in a trust instead of giving it to you. We have, it would be something that they would really have to set up you know, through an attorney um, and make sure that they met all the state and federal requirements to make sure that your daughter's interests were protected and that there were no sort of challenges. Because plenty of people put together trust, but they don't meet the language, and, you know, they get challenged, and we have to try to fix them and save the money. So, yeah, I understand. And I, I've been having my, um, what's the word, uh, uh, concerns about the impact of their generosity. Right. And unfortunately, uh, they probably have been doing this for three years. When I put the question out to them, uh, have you looked into the impact on the other folks you have helped over the last three, four years? I think they choose three families every every year, and we were chosen. So, uh, which is wonderful, but I, I didn't get an answer on that. And I need to do some homework because I think it's going to have a tremendous impact on the family. Uh, and I, I was just hoping that there was some uh, the previous history of families who have gone through that who might even be on the line today and how they've navigated the system to uh, benefit the uh, the help that this church is trying to do, the community at large. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great suggestion, and, and I would just put forth again, it, it sort of lends itself to a longer discussion thereafter, but um, organizations that like to benefit really should be looking into sort of creating what's called a community trust okay, um, so that they can pull the resources so it's sort of their trust that they're raising funds for individuals that they um, select, but it's a pooling of several individuals' monies, but that's permissible. Um, she would still be protected, so it may be, they may have to do some work in terms of getting something like that developed if this is something that they are proactive and, and continually want to do, and then, you know, your daughter could benefit down the road if they don't have their act together now. And that's kind of what we're looking at, probably recommending they do something. We just didn't know what the something would be. Right. That's the something. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, okay, so... Any other questions about what we've talked about thus far before I get into more particulars about my favorite topic, the health care issues? Yeah, one more question regarding beneficiaries of states and life insurance policies. Uh -huh. If the primary receiver as would be myself would be changed to my spouse, would they also be at, um, would that money also um, be subject to the government's access? Uh, meaning someone's made you a beneficiary, it will change into my spouse to help. Right. Well, the problem with that is Medicaid, uh, when someone's, when, there's different standards for individual versus couples. And so income thresholds, resources are changed when someone is married. So that wouldn't really be the solution. 
um, to give to your husband is sort of giving to you as well because also depending on the state that you live in and how valuable property is assessed, um, you know, a lot of states embrace, you know, 50-50 or other states uh, embrace you enjoy the whole and the half of what the total assets are of a couple. And so I wouldn't recommend it going to the spouse instead because then depending on how your state may be structured, it may be money that comes ultimately into you and affects you. You've got to be very careful when money comes to one spouse um, to not commingle with monies that are held jointly by both spouses because once that touches then it's, it's yours as well. If you're... Um, you and your husband's estate isn't structured so as to leave to you, um, then that lump sum that was redirected to him ultimately comes into your hands if he passes first. So the special needs trust is really the best alternate, not giving it to someone else for those reasons if it's a spousal situation, but also from the perspective a lot of parents want well, I don't want to do a special needs trust. I'm just going to give to the other sister or the brother because they know that I'm giving them everything but the half is supposed to go to their, you know, adult sibling, um, and they'll take care of things. It's not about a trust issue. I'm not making any commentary as to whether or not the child's going to do the right thing. But there, there's some real tax implications to a child receiving a share that they're really only partially owning. Um, in terms of if they get it all, even if they're supposed to use half of it for their brother Johnny, it's all theirs anyway. And so it's really not a good idea. If you want that individual to be in charge, point then the trustee of the special needs trust that you direct the money into, whether it's a, a spousal situation or a sibling situation. Thank you. Okay. I have a quick question before sure. you move on. Um, is it also smart to not have many assets or money in your name with SSDI? Um, well, SSDI is not means tested, so they don't look at what your resources are. The standard is slightly different in that the main thrust there is your disability has to be so significant that it, it completely impairs you from engaging in any gainful economic employment. And so, whereas SSI, they're looking at, obviously, employment because gainful, they're putting it, well, if you make more than 100 then that's gainful, so you probably don't need this. Whereas SSDI, you have to fill out all those, you know, evaluation forms and the questionnaires and application and have physicians submit certifications to say, yes, because of however the individual's disability manifests itself, they cannot work because of depression or they cannot work because they can't sit for a certain amount or they can't walk or whatever the issue is. And so they will send you out after you become SSDI eligible a ticket to work sort of incentive to say you can only earn up to this much um, in order to retain your SSDI payments as well, but they don't care what you have in your name because SSDI isn't means tested and it is not connected to Medicaid. Okay? And I have SSDI, and I just wanted to, I wasn't yeah. sure it would be smart to I mean, have money in my name. Yeah. Um, you know, there may be other issues that, that may not be good for your particular situation, but not based on SSDI. Um, and, and for everyone who's listening as well, as I said earlier, with SSI being connected with Medicaid, after being on SSDI for two years as disabled, you will get Medicare coverage, which is another form of health insurance. 
So it typically kicks in at 29 months because there's a five-month waiting period. But um, a lot of people may fall into the category um, as dual eligibles because they may have a combination of SSI and SSDI, uh, get Medicaid, and then later on get Medicare. So in that circumstance, if you have Medicare along with Medicaid, uh, Medicaid is always going to pay last. Uh, depending on if you have private insurance and the nature of the private insurance uh, and what your age is and if you're a retiree will dictate whether Medicare is a primary or secondary payer. So I'm just pointing that out because it's very important. It's not just about how do I categorize things to get it paid, but it's also you need to understand your different forms of coverage because the onus is on the beneficiary to make sure the providers, um, facilities, uh, labs and this and that know in what order they're to bill because if I always thought it should be them, but you know beneficiaries will get hammered if they if they dictate something uh, to someone and it's in the wrong order. You're going to be the one who's going to get squeezed in the end, so to speak. Um, so any in that situation, uh, I, I just before this call um, spoke with someone from my insurance company. Because now I'm on Medicare, I receive SSD, uh -huh. and um, it's already gotten screwed up because Medicare didn't forward some bills to the insurance company that I thought they were doing. But anyway, I can relate to that. Yeah, I mean, I have spent uh, significant time people just bringing in boatloads of documents and EODs. I don't even know where to start, you know, and having to send an entire package to Medicare saying you were supposed to be primary or you were supposed to be secondary, um, reprocessing so that we can resubmit to Blue Cross and Blue Shield, for example, or, or whatever it is. And, you know, it can be done. You know, you've got, with Medicaid or Medicare, you know, you've got a year that you can get them to reprocess. I appreciate it. One, not pleasant for you. Um, that's to deal with it with everything else that you're dealing with, but um, it can be done, and you just have to make sure that they get whether you messed up or they messed up. You have to clean it up from their perspective, yeah. um, you know, which is unfortunate. But everybody will put the brakes on when somebody figures out we shouldn't have been paying first or second or whatever the order is. So it is unfortunate. Uh, any other questions before I go into more specifics about the healthcare now? Okay. Uh, in terms of the coverage, if there's a couple of things that um, are critical importance. In addition to knowing if you have multiple forms of insurance, the order and making sure that individuals know in which order they're supposed to bill, you want to make sure that you understand what type of plan you have as well. Now, most individuals, if they are working, they're going to have um, a benefit, which is the employer providing them health insurance. <clears throat> other individuals may have purchased their own policy, either on their own or because they're in a self-employed or individual employer situation. Um, those are the most common policies, other than having the additional coverage of Medicare or Medicaid that one is going to have. But in the private insurance realm, when you're getting it from your employer, it's really important to understand what type of plan you have. Now, I don't mean the alphabet soup that's out there in terms of, although that is important, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but more, is it a traditional plan in the sense that your employer is paying a contract fee for coverage to be provided to its employees, and that's it. Insurance company assumes the risk, traditional model. 
most people will know that because they'll get a plan, they'll be from Aetna or Horizon or Blue Cross or whomever, um, and the cover says that, you go inside and it gets to your table content and continues on to your coverage and that sort of thing. The other type of employer-provided plan is something called self-funded or self-insured. Um, how do you figure that out? Well, your employer will either tell you or you're going to find that out with looking in the first five pages of your plan. Um, I do want to pause to say if anybody's saying what she's talking about, you don't have a plan, you need to get one as soon as possible. I'm amazed at the amount of times that I talk to people and they don't have one. You know, I sort of say it's, it's like, you know, I have a GPS system. If I didn't, I would die. I don't know where I'm going if I don't have a GPS system. I don't know how you know what you're doing and whether or not you're, you know, somebody's pulling something over you if you do not have this plan. It's your roadmap to the strongest piece of advocacy that this community needs to know whether or not you're being told no rightfully because, sadly, I don't think I'm telling anyone something that they don't already know. Most times when the insurance company tells you it's not covered, it's not true. Um, so if you don't have the plan, it's very difficult for you to combat that um, from all the angles that I would suggest that you combat it from. Most times you're going to get it's not covered or you're going to get it's not medically necessary or something maybe experimental or, or things of that nature. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But if you don't have this plan, I don't, I don't know how any of you are able to navigate your system and, and make sure you're getting what you're supposed to under your plan. Um, and so in that document with regard to the self-funded and self-insured, within the first five pages, you're going to see different language that talks about this is a plan specially administered by it's going to look the same because your employer is deciding, instead of just paying that contract premium and then letting the insurance company run the scene, I'm going to decide what I want to cover and what I don't want to. I'm going to assume the risk of insuring my employees because that's a cheaper option for me. And I'm going to pay the insurance company to administer the claims because that's what they're in the business of doing. I don't do that. So the arrangement is going to look similar from the exterior in that you're still going to get that same booklet that looks like it came from the insurance company, but then the first five pages is going to have different language that says if you've got a billing question, you go here. If you've got a claims dispute, you go here. The appeal procedure is also different, which is why I'm spending the time to say you need to figure out what you're doing. And the private insurance that comes directly from the employer where he's paying the premium in the traditional sense, you get three levels of appeal. You have two internal within the plan, and you have an external one. Now, each state is going to be different. I'll tell you, in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania, you're going to the respective departments that oversee insurance. So in New Jersey, it's the Department of Health and Senior Services. In New Pennsylvania, it's the Department of Insurance. Whatever your equivalent is is where the exterior reviews with private insurance are heard. Um, I can't speak as to what each individual state's laws are in terms of the impact of that external, but in New Jersey, I can say that it was non-binding and now is signed and has been for several years. Um, I'd have to check specifically on the Pennsylvania side. Um, I don't recall off the top of my head if, it, if it's a buying decision or not, but other states may be different in that regard. If it's a self-funded or a self-insured plan, you still have three levels of appeal, Two internal, but they go to different entities, not just everything's going to end or everything's going to horizon or whatever the company is. Um, and the external appeal is not under the jurisdiction of state insurance laws, but rather under the federal government. 
And so whatever the reason is for your state, it would go to the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, so it's important to know what type of plan you have so you know where you're going to appeal. Similarly, the appeal rights, uh, I'm sorry, the appeal timelines are different. Now, another way that it impacts in terms of coverage is you can imagine when an employer is deciding to pick and choose what they want to cover and assume the risk, certain uh, services are going to be more limited than what a state plan mandated, uh, sorry, a state mandated plan would require, which is, you know, the employer just paying a contract. Every state has uh, a certain level of mandated benefits of an insurance company doing business in their state. And so if an employer is buying a plan and the plan's uh, license to do business in your particular state, they must meet the state minimum mandate. So, for example, they, they must provide a certain level of nursing services or therapy services or they can't um, discriminate based on biologically based conditions or, you know, things of that nature, whereas, and all state mandates are varied, um, whereas for a self-insured, self-funded plan, they can do what they want. <laughs> the states can't tell them what to do. The federal government can tell them what to do, um, but that makes your circumstance a bit more difficult. Now, in my opinion, and this is obviously with exceptions, Self-funded, self-insured plans are horrific for people with disabilities or people who have children with disabilities. They're fine for someone who doesn't have to go to the doctor and it's really sort of in case care um, unless you're in a circumstance where you've got a smaller employer or have a really good circumstance with your employer that you're able to approach them and say, this is where I have an unmet need for myself or for my child, and at least it's difference if the employer could decide, all right, well, I'll change that provision and now cover whatever it is instead of saying, well, I have to wait until the annual enrollment period happens and where are we locked in and if I did that, then the contract premiums are so much higher and I can't afford to do that, you know, type of thing. So it can, it has a double-edged sword. It, it, largely, it's not the best plan. Um, can I ask you, uh, is it always one or the other? Can it be where a plan is subsidized by the employer, but there's also a payment from the employee? Um, meaning that you, you get some sort of deduction out of your payroll? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that, that happens. I mean, that can happen whether it's they contract and they're paying a premium and the insurance company's handling everything, which is traditionally how it's done, or if it's a self-funded, self-insured. That's, that's sort of a... Um, I work a detail uh, of one's employment, whether or not your health coverage is free or if you have to contribute. Yeah, I, I worked for the New York State government, mm -hmm. and it was my understanding that there was some subsidy and then by the state, but I'm not positive about that. Well, and you're, you're in a hybrid of the two, <laughs> which is a very nice transition to the next, so thank you. <laughs> um, I can't speak as to what your particular state is, but each state is going to have state governmental employees, and so they're going to have a different form of insurance uh, that, you know, is a state health benefit plan. Uh, a lot of states may, may choose to have, <coughs> excuse me, a hybrid of the two, which are typically referred to more as state um, self-administered medical plans, 
Mm-hmm. Now, again, I'm not in any way attesting what any state other than, you know, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, because we don't practice there, call themselves. But they're typically, the best way to follow this conversation is that they're hybrids of what I've been describing from private employment settings. And so you also have that, that slight nuance that while you most likely have three appeals, um, you're going to have them in different fashion, meaning if there is a hybrid situation, there's still going to be some sort of insurance company that's administering the claims and denying or approving and that sort of thing. So they're going to be the same entity that one is filing their appeals at. But I'll give you the example in New Jersey. It's called the State Health Benefits Plan. They have, for their state employees, you can pick a couple of plans, and Horizon is most often the one that's administering the claim. So you submit Horizon for approval. If Horizon denies, you then file your appeal with Horizon. If your first appeal is not successful, you file your second, and that goes before what they call the State Health Benefits Commission, which is a bunch of governmental employees and the Horizon representatives. One goes and pitches their case. Um, in front of this committee, uh, you know, and unfortunately, this circum- this situation, I'm not speaking about any other state situation, um, is not a very fruitful exercise. It's more you just have to get through um, and exhaust those two levels because they've often made their mind up before because I've gone to those and my client has gone home and the letter's already in the mail the same day. So you tell me whether or not they contemplated what you said. Um, So the third level then uh, in New Jersey goes into the New Jersey's Office of Administrative Law, which is the administrative court level. So you're actually putting on a hearing in those type of circumstances. Um, So, again, I don't know what other states do, but you can see how you're always getting sort of three cracks um, as your appeal, but it could take a, a slightly different form. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the important thing to know for whatever your system is that you always want to make sure you get determinations in writing, that you timely respond. So typically, timely standard, whether I'm talking about publicly funded health care or private insurance, standard is about 10 days um, from when you receive notice. So you want to be filing, while typically first-level appeals can be done by telephone, I always advocate people to follow them up in writing. Most often, uh, with few exceptions, the second level will be required to be done in writing. And there are time frames, so generally they need to get back to you within, you know, 30 days from the first appeal, 60 days. There may be some nuances, plus or minus a few days here and there. Um, but those are general standards in terms of the response. If there is an emergent issue, you can ask for emergent or urgent review, in which case one must get back to you within 72 hours. But you must make that clear, and if you are making that request, you must do that in writing, even if your first appeal only requires a verbal appeal. Um, and so, you know, you, you need to be aware that they, obviously there are circumstances you can't wait 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, um, for a response. So that is available in those plans. They also are required to give you a written decision at the first level and let you know what are your rights from this point forward. What's my time frame for filing an appeal? To where do I file it? What do I need to include? They are also required when they deny something to cite policy language that has been the basis of their decision so that you can appropriately respond and argue your case. Um, that's to happen both at the first level decision, second level decision, um, when you're doing that. Now, similar in terms of if you have Medicaid coverage, 
Um, I know some states have just what's called a fee-for-service system, which is just purely getting the services from your state agency. Some have hybrids, but they also have it in a managed care system. Um, New Jersey has both, um, for example. And so one may be a Medicaid beneficiary, but they may only receive information from the state entity, and their card only has the state Medicaid agency on it. Whereas those who are in the managed care system, they have their Medicaid from an insurance company that the state is contracted to. Benefits are the same. It's just a different system under which um, one receives their services. In terms of Medicaid appeal rights, if one has services that are limited, terminated, or changed in any way, federal law dictates that you must receive written notice of the proposed change 10 days, at least 10 days before the proposed action takes place. That rarely happens for anyone who's thinking, well, I had that happen, I never got that. That's what the federal law requires. It's not to say it happens all the time. Once that happens, you may file a timely appeal. Again, we're talking 10 days from the notice action in order to stay your services. Now, that's a really great function that the Medicaid law has that private insurance companies do not. When you get denied for private insurance, you're fighting until you win. They're not keeping the services in or they're not going to provide the services until you figure it out. In the Medicaid situation, for example, if you were getting you know, therapy services or you were getting private duty nursing services at home and they say, guess what, we know we've been providing you 12 hours a day every day and that you need that, but we don't think you need them at all. So we're going to terminate them. You file an appeal, they must keep the same level of services in the home or whatever it is that they were doing until the full disposition of your appeal. So that means until you are fully heard and in a Medicaid, if you're in the fee-for-service system, that's and also you're going to an administrative law hearing, whatever your state's equivalent of that is. So you're having, you're putting on a case, witnesses, evidence, the judge is deciding, and until the judge makes a decision, the matter has to stay as is, status quo, services cannot change. If the Medicaid agency terminates the services despite that federal requirement, there's also another federal citation that requires them to immediately restore them. And so I always say when I file it, you know, if you have inappropriately, um, while this was in the mail, you better restore them, you know, and copy the court. So um, those are great, great protections. Um, you don't have a crisis or an emergency while you're trying to go through the Medicaid process. That's not something that you have in the um, private insurance industry. Now, um, can I ask a question? Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, I have a uh, 12-hour nursing care for my daughter because I returned to work this uh, previous August, and I'm a teacher, so in June, it is my understanding that they're going to terminate my nursing care for her. Um, we do plan to appeal that decision because her medical needs are that which I cannot do it on my own even if I am home for two months in the summer. So if we appeal that decision, you're saying that they have to keep the nursing care in place until a decision has been made regarding that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you for that clarification. Um, Valerie, do you yes. mind if we open the floor for questions? Um, no, it's not at all. For the sake of time at this yeah, point. No, that's um, fine. Go ahead. Okay, that'd be great because um, that way if anybody has a question that hasn't been addressed yet, it might be something you were going to talk about anyway. Well, so, okay, it might be a good idea too because I could talk all day about <laughs> these topics, but you, you probably want to cut it off and have people ask questions. So, so um, I'll open the floor for questions. And again, if you'll just introduce yourself and then ask your question. Uh, this is Ruth from Ohio, and 
I'm an adult and I've been disabled for a couple years now. And uh, when my when my condition um, warranted it, I was uh, declared disabled my em- by my employer. Uh-huh. And uh, the long-term disability provider had a company that assisted with Social Security disability, and I was approved for Social Security disability in the first try. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I c- I cannot get my long-term disability carrier to, um, you know, provide me with my stipend that I paid for, you know, in the years that I was employed. So I had to hire an ERISA attorney, Mm -hmm. and we're going through the thing of filing the briefs and all that. Right. But from what he was telling me is that because the ERISA laws, whatever settlement I get, that he gets like either a third or 40% of that uh, money. And there's no way to fight that. Is, Is that correct? Um, to be honest, ERISA law is very specific. Um, you know, they're certified ERISA attorneys. I don't know if that is federal, because uh, ERISA is E-R-I-S-A for people who are listening. It's a federal law that governs employee benefits plans. Um, I don't know if that's an ERISA law or if that's his company's law. <laughs> you know, we don't do... My particular, I mean, attorneys are compensated in different ways. We do, you know, there's certain things that are flat fee figures, some things are hourly. There are other attorneys who are structured on what is called contingencies. Right. So after they win something, they take a certain percentage. So I don't know that it's a law-based. It's more a law firm-based requirement. But I can't say that ERISA doesn't say that because, you know, I'm not aware that there's a law that requires the attorney to get a certain share. <laughs> so you're not sure whether it's the federal law or his law, right? I don't because I don't practice ERISA law. I don't know that it's ERISA. I'd be surprised, but um, you know, I don't know if the law says it. It would be rather this is what the firm, in the same way that you know, if I'm doing a certain matter, this is what the flat fee does for the head partner. Yeah, you know? and, and there's no other options for me. I'm guessing. Well, I mean, I would I mean, say if you're argue. using this attorney. You know, your option is, you know, to find out if there's a different compensation situation with another attorney who is experienced and capable of handling your matter. Okay. You know, I don't know what he said if he said there's no option because that's the way it is at my firm. There's no yeah. negotiation. Or if he's saying I am entitled to 40 percent as per the law. That 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 is what he con- uh, he said to me that it was a federal law that he got a certain percentage of the and it's a contingency agreement. Well, contingency agreement is not federal law. Contingency agreement is what we as attorneys Right, buy. right. But he said that the, the compensation to him was, was because of the arrest and it's a federal law. Yeah, I mean, not having practiced that, I don't know if there's a provision in there. I mean, one thing that you could do if you're concerned, you know, in terms of being informed going forward, you may want to contact your local bar association. Yeah. And ask them... You know, I'm not an attorney, so I don't know how to research. How do I find out whether or not the ERISA law dictates the amount that my attorney gets to recover? Okay, okay. Okay? Yeah, it's just just I've been struggling this for over two years. Yeah, I mean, 40% is typically a very standard contingency fee that attorneys charge. Okay. So that's why, you know, I think it's more a law firm thing, but I can't attest whether ERISA says that specifically. Okay. I don't practice in that area. So that's what I would advise you to do to try to verify so at least you feel like you know what your choices are. Okay. Because it, it's, just, it's just frustrating that my employer says I can't work and Social Security says I can't work, but the disability company says, yeah, we know you have the disease, but we don't know why you can't work. 
Yeah. And, and, and that's the answers I got with all my appeals. Yeah. So I, I just was uh, there's another option. Right. Yeah, I would look into that just so you're informed. And then if, okay. if something may tell you that it's not, then maybe you might want to ask for other ERISA-based um, attorneys to okay. Okay, explore you. your other options. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, other questions? Yep. Hello? Hi. Go ahead. Um, I, I'm Donna from Massachusetts, and I'm a single parent of a, a young um, teenager. I'm trying to, you know, figure out how to navigate all and and weigh all the pieces of SSI and SSDI and and you know trying to figure out if I should put my house jointly into our names and and you know like all of these big pieces um, and I and I guess I'm I'm wondering how I go about figuring out a way to do this without stepping on my own feet um, because I don't know the difference between SSI and SSDI for a child. Were you on the um, call earlier? Um, I came in at about 20 after. Okay. Um, in terms of deciding between SSI and SSDI, there's one easy way to figure out. If your daughter hasn't worked or you don't know that she ever will be able to work, SSDI won't be an option. One has to work at some point in their life to pay into the system, so to speak, um, in order for that to be a criteria. So if someone's never worked, there's no sort of proof that you have to go through to say that this person's disability is so significant they can no longer work because you didn't get to the working stage. Mm -hmm. So if she was never employed, SSDI is not something you're applying. Now, maybe that's an option, you know, down the road, and it would have to be something that, you know, she was employed and then her disability becomes such that it prevents her from being engaged in any employment. So that may be a later down the road. In terms of SSI, that is income-based. So while she's a minor, um, as I was discussing earlier, if you've got more than $2,000 resources in your name, um, you've got a house, so that's probably not going to run um, or if you're making more than $800 a month, approximately state, you know, each state may have a slightly different range. It may be somewhere between 500 and 800. But um, if you're making more income than what's allowable, you're going to kick her out of eligibility because your income and resources are going to be deemed to her. Once she's 18, if she meets the individual requirements, uh, she will get SSI on her own record. Um, so she's not making more income than is allowable, and if she doesn't have more than the $2,000 resources in her name, then she'll qualify for that, and you should try to get that if that's what her circumstances are, so that you get the amount. And usually you're getting roughly between 450 and 650 on SSI. And then depending on what, where you are, I don't know specifically if Massachusetts gives automatic, but most states do if you're SSI, you're getting automatic Medicaid coverage or whatever Massachusetts is Yeah, it is automatic. Okay. And so that would be a benefit. So, you know, you, you want to definitely do that. Now, you had mentioned about should we be putting her name on the deed. For many reasons, I often would say, no, don't do that. Um, aside from disability considerations, you want to think about the tax ramifications. Um, this is slightly getting off, but when, when one has their children added. Now, this is a decision. You want to make an informed decision. And adult children, they say, yes, I do want to be added. Um, but they need to understand that by being added to a parent's deed to the property, that when the parent passes away, they do not get the steps-up basis, 
when people pass away and if you inherit their house, for example, I'll use my example. I know that my parents, uh, when they bought their home in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, my dad and his friend practically built the whole thing, so it cost them about $25,000. We are not on the deed. Maybe we should be or maybe we shouldn't, but that property is now worth $500,000 more. And so when my parents pass, we get a stepped-up basis, which means the value of the house, if we sell it, is as of the date of death, not what they paid for the house. If my name is on the deed and they pass, my basis in that house is at $25,000 because that's what they paid. And so the accession to wealth, if I'm selling a property, is $500,000 difference versus if I inherit the property and I get to set up basis of the 525, let's just use for example, and I sell it for less, I've got no gain. Sell it for that price, no gain. Sell it for a little more. If it's sold for 550, I only have $25,000 accession to wealth that I need to deal with for my own income tax purposes. But if his name is on a house deed, does that disqualify him for SSI when he turns 18? Well, that's that's the other issue. I was just talking about from a practical standpoint, from a tax perspective, that's why typically you don't want to, but people can say, well, that's fine, I'm all right with that. Um, from an SSI Medicaid perspective, you don't want to have that individual have anything in their name, so you wouldn't want to put them on your property because what that does, unless their name is later taken off, and there's a very complex path that we don't have enough time to go through today, but um, in terms of what you can do and what you can't do in terms of post-Medicaid application with home ownership to make sure it doesn't ultimately get a lien assessed upon the person's dying, but I would not recommend you putting her name on it based on not knowing anything about your family other than the fact that if you want to qualify for Medicaid and SSI, it's just not a good idea. Okay. And then the last piece of it is when when kids are transitioning from high school to whatever's next, right? and in our state there are transition services provided by Mass Rehab mm-hmm. on that organization. How does that mess up the SSI or SSCI or, or whatever they're trying to apply for, or is it even an issue? It should not be an issue. Um, programs such as that are sort of, they're all going to have different names, but they're sort of vocational rehabilitation-ish type of names. Um, and they're trying to provide services to assess what skills or what assistance does one need to go into the real world, whether it's. Um, skills that they need to be getting into some employment situation within the back end there that may have an impact, but you always have to bear in mind what are my income thresholds that I'm allowed to get on a monthly basis and still maintain my SSI and Medicaid. So it's going to be a balancing act. If part-time work may be something that your child gets involved in and they don't make any more than what the allowable is and the SSI and Medicaid is you know, maintain, but just gaining services alone from those type of organizations don't affect SSI and Medicaid eligibility, but if that then leads to them being in a situation where they're getting income, it may. You just have to sort of manage that um, and figure out what's best in that situation, Um, bearing in mind that each state has its own Medicaid waiver programs, as I discussed in the very beginning, 
And you may be having to figure out what those are to make sure that you're accessing the best Medicaid coverage while maintaining if employment's a good thing. Okay. Um, because you have to always remember, it's not about holding on to that SSI nut, as I call it, but it's the Medicaid. So if the person's going to have all the benefits that you get from an employment and an income, um, figure out if there's other Medicaid programs under which they can continue to receive their Medicaid services while doing so. And there's a lot of states that have sort of work incentive type of Medicaid programs as well that allow a much higher resource um, and income as well as part of the federal ticket to work incentive act to get people who have disabilities who would not otherwise work for fear of losing Medicaid coverage. Um, so, you know, you want to investigate your individual state incentive programs as well as the Medicaid waivers in those circumstances. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We have time probably for about two more questions. So, uh, I'll... Um, I have a question. This is Janice again from Pennsylvania. I have a uh, three-year-old little girl. And um, I'm wondering if you do um, provide any information regarding uh, recently we had our daughter uh, deemed MR from the, you know, from the county. And trying to get modifications to her home, she's you know not ambulatory, nonverbal, very medically fragile, and um, we're looking to get you know ramps and you know bathroom that that fits her needs and um, uh, adaptations to a van, etc. And they said that as far as the puns is concerned, she's on the critical list and she does qualify for waiver money, waiver funds, but there are no funds available and there's nothing we can do about that. Right. Right. Uh, well. That's, that's a classic response that you're going to hear from any of these state agencies providing Medicaid-based services. Um, I personally don't take that as a, an acceptable response, although I know it's a reality because, I, you know, if I'm advocating for someone, I don't really care if you don't have money, figure it out where you're going to find it because this person has this need. Um, and so the answer to that is, you need to continue to push. Now, it's not something that pushing is going to be, you know, instantaneous result. I've had, I know how Pennsylvania can be. I'm probably about two years into this pushing with one individual um, that needs funding, and, you know, I've gone all the way up to the governor, you know, to get it, and miraculously now they've found funding. Um, you know, so it's perseverance, particularly in that type of response. We don't have the money. The squeaky wheels, what I say, always oh, is going to get them those services. They're hoping you go away. I'm not saying what they're saying may not be valid, that they just don't see it in their budget line items, but they can figure it out. If okay, you're not going you away, could. they can figure it out. I just don't go away. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, this, is, this is Joe Maletti. I'm uh, kind of new to some of this. Uh, I have the, I'm in New York with the three-and-a-half-year-old. Uh -huh. Um uh, insurance companies, when it comes to physical therapy, like to or want to see improvement uh, or proof of improvement to right. continue covering services. Clearly, in, in some cases, Mito uh, being that uh, can be degenerative, um, that's that's not the case. Uh -huh. And a letter of medical necessity, I'm told, is, is not good enough. Um, and we're in the process just right now of embarking yeah. on you know fighting this. Uh, I just wanted to get any tips or feedback on that. Yeah, I mean, your letters of, and I didn't get to touch on this in detail, so I wanted, your letters of medical necessity are critically important, but they're not enough without having supporting information. Um, you know, the medical necessity letter has to be directed to the audience, you know, whether you're dealing with the insurance companies, 
um, or educationally, you need to make sure you're not using sort of a one-size-fits-all type of letter. Uh, similarly, you want to make sure that the doctor isn't forgetting that the person that he or she is writing to isn't as knowledgeable about the situation that he or she is. And that's um, not as common as disrespect, but just because they're so skilled. And, you know, I can relate that sometimes you say, oh, I need to break that down a bit more. And so, you know, advocate to individuals to make sure that they're involved in talking with their doctors to make sure that the doctor fully understands. And often it means you're talking to the office manager or someone um, along those lines and, and giving them language for the doctor to beef up and put on their letterhead and make sure that it's accurate. But to talk about who the child is, what the disability is, and particularly with this condition, I think it's very important to go into what the particular type of the mitochondrial disease is, which organ is it affecting, if it's multiple systems, how are they all intertwining, and how does this particular condition that you're, uh, treatment that you're asking for, how will that interact with other issues? Sort of like you want to make it like this big office book that it's going to translate into this is going to be a big problem for your insurance company if you stop this treatment because this is sort of the domino effect that will happen. And so it's important not only to explain and make sure they understand what the disease is and everything that's going on, but then connect why is it medically necessary and what are the ramifications that this is taken away, not just for the particular area that's being addressed, but how it, you know, compromises the other body systems and, and what does that mean um, in terms of the child's prognosis or needing other more invasive, more expensive procedures and treatments. Um, I would also say the letter is not enough. The doctor, if they have any materials that explain the condition or explain the particular treatment um, or have any studies to explain this is sort of how therapies run the course in this particular segment of mitochondrial disease, and so you're going to see ups and downs, plateaus, you know, and this is all normal, but you've got to get beyond the plateau or you've got to get beyond the initial regression that because of the nature of the degenerative condition so that the doctor's fully explaining and giving materials to support what they're saying so the insurance company can't just take that easy out saying, well, you know, you're plateauing, you're not making any progress, and now it's debilitative um, type of situation. So, uh, Valerie, this is Christy. I have a question about that. Is is the documentation that a physician provides, does it necessarily need to be uh, academic, or could documentation that, say, is from an organization like MitoAction with a doctor's name on it who's from our board be something I mean, either helpful? Either. I mean, you know, a lot of times when I'm doing uh, healthcare insurance, I do my own research. You know, so whatever's out there in terms of medical online libraries or, um, you know, particular discipline um, governing critical um, diagnostic manuals or studies or, you know, I always ask for people to get it from the physicians, but I often don't get it, so I need to do my own research. And if you have materials that a physician who has experience has compiled or has written about, you know, that's a great thing for a member of your organization to be able to insert on their own. I mean, parents are amazing in my experience, what they know, what they have their hands on, um, and what they're able to describe on their own. So just to count your own um, value in terms of explaining what you understand of your child, but also the condition to accompany 
that medical necessity letter and any, you know, sort of learned materials. And I would think, Christy, if you have that, that would be considered a learning material that would be just as valuable as an academic one. That's great. Uh, we actually um, are in the process, and in, in hopefully in the next month, um, I met with Dr. Corson yesterday, who has authored, who, Mark Corson is a metabolic specialist here in Boston at New England Medical Center, who is um, one of the premier mitochondrial disease docs. He has close to 1,000 mito patients, and he has written a primary care physician's guide for managing the symptoms of mitochondrial disease that has um, a lot of very basic but very, very relevant information. And so now that I um, have met with him and we're pretty much finished with the editing process, our next step will be to start to format that and put it on the website. But if any of you have an urgent need, urgent meaning not that since you're dying to see it because we all are, but that, you know, you have something like, Joe, what you're talking about, um, let me know and maybe we can help get pieces that will be relevant to you ahead of time. I would also say to your situation, Joe, and to anybody who's thinking about Mito, it's, it's hard to swallow whether you're an adult or you're the parent, but it's almost like you have to lay out the worst case scenario. So rather than looking at the fact that perhaps, um, you know, your child was able to walk and then through therapy now they are walking less, you need to point out that when your child is at their very worst, they would be hospitalized, be on, you know, TPN for, for nutrition, be on uh, peripheral IV for fluids, and be, you know, um, needing, you know, 100% constant nursing care. That's exactly that's where, where I was going. Home. <laughs> yeah, so the fact that your child is at home and has been out of the hospital for X amount of days or weeks is the, is the point of progress. Right. Even if, even if to you as their parent, and I can directly relate to what you're talking about, Joe, you say, well, gosh, we're not making progress. You're out of the hospital and your child's alive, so that's the progress. <laughs> Right, and I mean, I'm not, I was trying to be delicate about, but it sounds like you completely saw where I was going, Christy, but, you know, I am not above whatsoever when it comes to fighting these insurance companies, taking it to, like, you know, to fatal levels, and I just warn parents, you have to be careful, you know, I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm trying to win something for you, you know, and it does work, you know, often when you say this is more, less expensive than that, that doesn't work, oddly. If you say, you know, like I recently had a call today from a client who his daughter was in a car, she has a lot of disabilities, but she was in a very severe car accident and had lived her, you know, first eight years of life in a pediatric hospital and he wanted to bring her home and the insurance company wouldn't provide nursing in order for her to come home because that's the only way she could come home. And I'm very pleased, you know, to say that, you know, they were not successful the first two times you know, in the appeals, and they came to me, and I was able to get them that. He just called me today and said how wonderful she's doing, you know, at home. But we had to really make it, you know, get ugly, basically, um, to make them understand. But one of the things was the parent was saying on his own when he was appealing about the tremendous savings he was saving them by taking her home and her not being in a PDX facility. And it was like half the cost they could care less. Right. They're like, no, we'd be happy to pay 100 versus 50, for example. You know, we're not doing what you want. You know, so unfortunately, money doesn't always buy, you know, not, I, I'm not ever going to say they have a heart, um, that that argument is there, but, you know, it does translate when you, you do, as Christy was saying, as I was alluding to, um, make it like that. So I hope that's helpful. Well, what actually tipped the balance in that case, if it wasn't expense? 
Um, I think it was just the fact that there was a uh, person with letterhead that had letters behind their name <laughs> instead of a person, unfortunately. Uh, well, I mean, you know, there were a lot of issues that they didn't argue. They were really hammering on, we're saving you money, we're saving you money, we're saving you money, you know. And, and I said, and it was really hard for me to redirect my client because he had hired um, a nurse to sort of be an advocate, and the crew then came in, and all they wanted to talk about was the cost savings. And I said, you know, that's important, but when I laid out my five arguments, I said, number five is your, your sole argument to me because it, it, it's relevant. And I get what you're saying, but they don't care. And so that's that's been your problem. And I sort of go from a very sort of basic, um, which goes back to my comment about, I don't know how any of you are going to know what you're doing if you don't have your health care plan. That's a contract. So take out all the sort of emotion of everything else and just say, if somebody pays for something to be done in a contract sense, you give money, you expect a service back. The contract usually outlines what those services will entail. And the example of the healthcare, your plan lays out what you were covered for the premium that's paid, whether you're paying it or the employer is paying it. It's a contractual relationship. And that's always my first argument. Not medical necessity, not this is cheaper, you know, nothing other than you're breaching a contract. That's the strongest legal argument in any circumstance that everybody gets. You know, and then you go into the medical necessity and, and the other, you know, arguments and, you know, I always throw in Americans with Disabilities Act and Olmstead and keep people in the community type of stuff. That, so, you know, but because they focused solely on money and they didn't care about that. And also they didn't have the legal experience to know that a lot of insurance companies will use internal policy guidance type of documents that many of you may have thrown at you. And they don't have the force of law, so they can use them all they want. Um, but they usually don't use, listen to a person who's not an attorney who says you can't use that, or most people who are not attorneys don't know that they can't use those, which is an IE benefit. So, you know, those are the issues, in my opinion, that, that changed it. So with um, the contractual thing being the the, the, the big deal for uh-huh. benefits, that means when you sign up for anything, you really need to look at the fine print very carefully. Right. Huh. Right. That's, uh, why, I that's why I want you all to have your plan. <laughs> Could I ask about another type of an appeal uh, involving a medication that everybody here is familiar with? Sure. Uh, coenzyme Q10. Oh, yeah. not, a, not a prescription right. medicine. I saw that on the website. And um, so it's not covered by most insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's some exceptions to this, but uh, I want to appeal this, but I'm... I mean, do I have any grounds to do that, really, if the prescription plan that I have is states at the outset that it doesn't cover non-prescription medicines? But this is an essential treatment for mitochondrial disease. Yeah, I mean, I think, I always think it's worth appealing. Um it's hard for me to say what your chances are because I don't know what your policy says other than that, you know, we don't cover things that aren't considered prescription. Um, without digging, without having a policy to dig in to see what are your alternate arguments because, okay, it's not a prescription, so I know I can't argue for it to be covered in the prescription. A lot of plans have um, certain language that you could argue. For example, there may be a certain coverage that it's not the same as it would be for prescription, but for uh, nutraceuticals, which that would be considered because 
they're not drugs, they're more the nutraceutical type of coverage. Um, you know, so I don't know if your policy has that. I don't know if your policy has any provisions that talks about alternate and complementary type of medicine coverage. A lot of plans now have those as incentive programs that they'll give you certain stipends and they cover them in a different way than they cover drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, also I spoke to, uh, to Wendy about this, and she says that her coenzyme Q10 is covered because it's compounded. That would be my suggestion, uh, is, uh, is that if your doctor writes a prescription to a compounding pharmacy, or a pharmacist to do it, and the pharmacist includes folic acid as the primary ingredient in that CoQ10, then it's more Folic acid has to be included in it. Then it will be covered. So there's an article about that on the website, Bob. Yeah, I'm going to have Dr. Lee's article. And, uh, and I think in that article you'll see the link to the pharmacist who gave us that information, and he ships um, his CoQ10. If you can just get the script from a doctor for the CoQ10, then he will compound it and FedEx it overnight to you. And so, but folic acid, you're saying, is the key? Well, that's what he has suggested to us because, again, you want to you want to work that insurance company for their existing policies. So apparently, one milligram of folic acid is a covered drug, period. That's the actually covered um, vitamin, you know. So as long as that's included, I guess, and that's the reason for that, I think, is because of pregnant women. Right. Um, so as long as that's included, then it slides in as being covered under mm-hmm. Well, I'll check into this, definitely. Thank you. Can I say one more thing for you about CoQ10? And I just I actually just got mine approved yesterday, but through PA Medicaid, I went through all those appeals with all the private insurances, everything you guys suggested, and I've been doing that for three years. And we were able to get approved by Medicaid, surprisingly, just last night. So I don't know that if it's obviously you know what Do you know what happened that helped you to finally be able to... Um, um, yeah, the, um, the person that was involved actually knew about Mito. I spoke with um, my neurologist um, with uh, for another patient who was through NDAC, and that's how we got it approved. There's several of us are getting approved this way. Excellent. So just just to let other people know that you might be able to go through the um, Medicaid system and get it. It's not hopeless at this point. <laughs> and for all of you who are in Massachusetts, um, just as an aside, it just recently came up to my attention also that Cookie 10 will be covered by MassHealth. Can I ask my own question? <laughs> Real briefly, I know we're at the end of the time. Uh-huh. As an adult, um, I've had a lot of mitral crisis to the point where I get locked in my own body, where I can't speak for myself and end up in the ICU for weeks to months on end. Um, I have the power of attorney and living will, but those are for end-of-life issues. And this is not an end-of-life issue. This is that I can't communicate or advocate for myself. How do I get my mom to be a representative legally and let the nurses and doctors know what she wants? Like, because she knows my wishes, but how does that legally... Well, I was going to say, I mean, I don't know, what state are you in? Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, you need to, uh, I practice in both states. We, we draft um, broad, general, durable power attorneys and medical directives, advanced directive, living will, all three of those are the same thing. Um, and we do not... Ex- 
exclude, I mean, we do not restrict those those uh, powers to the end of life decision making. Uh-huh. So I think you need to get a new <laughs> living will done because that should not be how it is applied at all. Okay, it was drafted by a, um, a nurse advocate. Maybe it just I need to go through a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in you know specifically, I mean, I I practice in both states and that's how I draft them. And I act, I live in Pennsylvania and I have been a power of attorney and have made decisions on both ends. So it's not just been end of life. The person just was not able to process and make informed decisions. So I know that it's neither a state law um, in Pennsylvania. It's just a document, really. Privately, can I communicate with you? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Heather, you heard her website earlier? Um, Yeah, I got that. Okay, thanks. Christy, does Dr. Corson have a website with any articles? Um, he does not. Really, what he has is coming through us. Okay. So, um, like I said, for the for the, he's written about a hundred pages about symptom management for mito patients, adults and children. It's really very um, inclusive of both. And we can and access so, them through you guys. So it's going to be starting to evolve onto the website. I just have to figure out how that's going to work. Okay. Kathy's listening to this going, oh, I hadn't heard about this before. Um, <laughs> well, you, you did tip. Yeah, you tipped me off earlier. <laughs> um, so, but the, at this point, if you have an urgent need, something having to do with, like, you're fighting an insurance battle or so forth, email me and let's talk about it. There may be some things I can get to you sooner. Um okay that will help you and then all of that will be publicly available and it's a place for you to direct your insurance company, your primary care doctor, or for you to print out and include with the things that you have okay. you know, in those information. Sounds good. So um well I'd like to wrap it up and Valerie, I will recommend your website again. If you look under the printed materials um section uh, it says in print on the hankel1.com newsletter. I find that there are a lot of very useful articles that go in-depth about things like specialty trusts and um, and so forth. And I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say I, I found to, that When I was helpful. doing research um, on your website earlier, um, I did notice that it's probably because it's a personal interest of mine. Um, I did notice that there was mention about some of the treatment of diet modification and natural supplementation and whatnot. And I know a really good source that I just wanted to sort of throw out there, yeah, whether or not it will work for those with mitochondrial disease or not. Um, you know, this is more of a alternate complementary, not legal reference, but I'd just like to share it with you, if I may. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it's Doc Smith, D-O-C-S-M-I-T-H dot org. Um, and he's applied physiologist that works with what's called a paleolithic way of eating and dealing with nutraceuticals. And I just think that that may be something um, that people may want to investigate as add-on or exploring getting more information. So for whatever it's worth, there it is. That's great. And Valerie, I have to also applaud you. I think that for a person who has not directly advocated for anyone with mitochondrial disease, you did a great job today really understanding some of the issues that people with mito face with having a degenerative and in some cases confusing or not very visible and well-identified um, multi-organ disease. And I I really appreciate that because obviously you took some time to figure out 
what it is exactly that we we as patients and parents are dealing with. And um, and so I hope that all of you can, you know, help me right now and just say thank you to Valerie because she did this as a service for us today. And, oh, thank um, you, and Appreciate it a great deal. Thank you. And it may be worthwhile in, you know, in six months or so, Valerie, to have another conversation because obviously we could keep talking about many of these issues. Yeah, I'd and love to. I'd love to. How you get a hold of me. <laughs> so, um, okay. So that's great. And just for you all to know, part of what MitoAction's goal is to connect you with the kinds of advocacy um, resources that you need. And so sometimes that's going to be med medical and sometimes that's going to be legal. And so our conversation with Valerie will continue as we try to figure out ways that um, we can really help connect you, the patients and the parents, with advocacy resources are actually going to be able to step in and make a difference with, you know, the battles that you have because it's a firm belief of all of us at MitoAction, and I'm sure you believe the same thing, that we're the ones with the energy disorders, so why should we be fighting these battles? Right. <laughs> right? We need help with that, and so um, so that's that's the intention. So, Valerie, thank you so much. My pleasure, my pleasure. Everybody have a nice weekend. Yes, thank you so much. We just have one you, more Jenny. announcement to the group in general, and that's that I'd like to share that we have a new meeting that's going to take place on the second Fridays of the month. Again, same time, same call-in number, and that's for that's our newly diagnosed support group. So for both adults and parents of children who are either going through the diagnosis or dealing with the diagnosis, um, that newly diagnosed period is one of the most challenging times in your cycle of having mitochondrial disease. So please help me to spread the word about that. That actually will take place next Friday and then the second Friday of every month at noon. And then I also would encourage you to take a look at the website and notice some of the things that are happening. We've got a new blog up and we're actively adding events to our calendar, including committee meetings. And now is the time. If you feel like you have a little bit of energy to share, to get involved in finding out more about a specific area of advocacy with MITO or in support, the best way to do that is by getting involved on a committee. And we have committees for adults as well as for school age resources and a very active awareness committee that all have regular meetings. So I would encourage you to look on the website to find those meetings and participate in those because as is this one, they're always open. So um, thank you all for being on the call today. And I hope that you found this was helpful. If you have ideas about other topics you'd like to hear, please email me. My intention for March is to have um, a different pharmacist than Arthur, who we heard uh, last year talk. He talked about CoQ10. I'm going to, to have a conversation with a different pharmacist who's also a compounding pharmacist who will be joining us in March, who will be talking in more generalities than just cookie 10, but talking about the Mito cocktail. What that is, what's in it, what, how we can differentiate between all the different vitamins and what's really the more priorities based on what you have. Great. Right. Right. That'll be in March. Okay? Sounds okay. wonderful. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. you. Bye now. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.